All right, let's go. Let's do this. We are uh, continuing our series uh, this morning that I started last week called Ancient Tweets, where we're looking at the shortest books of the Bible, uh, of particularly of the New Testament. Uh, they're, it's, it's, it's crazy that we even call them books because these things are actually little, tiny little letters, just, just little, little correspondences that people sent uh, you know, uh, from one person to a church or whatever else, and, and, uh, uh, and they're small. They very rarely get any attention because they're so small. Pastors like a nice three-point sermon, and so when you've only got one little point in a, in a letter, they're like, well, that's not enough to preach. So they, they just skip over it. So I'm going to do, uh, actually this morning I'm preaching, uh, I've never preached from Jude before. I was thinking about it as I was preparing uh, this week. I don't think I've ever, I might have referenced a verse, you know, or something in it, but I've never like preached Jude. And, and the reason is, there's a good reason why I've never preached Jude. It is stinking weird. It's a weird little book. It is just like, there's stuff in, I would rather preach Revelation than preach Jude, although I am very excited about preaching it this morning. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. So, but there, like, it's just, there's just some weirdness to it that we, there's some references that we don't understand. There's some, you know, he makes reference to some weird stories that was like, I don't remember reading that story in the Bible. Where did that come from? And it's just, it's just got some weirdness to it. And, uh, and, and, and he's a little bit angry too. And, uh, and so weird and angry, I was like, that's right up my uh, alley right there, so let's just go for it. And so, so we're in the book of Jude. If you're looking for Jude in your Bible, it's the next to last book of the Bible. It's right before Revelation. It's only about one page long, so, so uh, get, your, get your dexterity going so you can pick all those pages apart. Uh, but anyway, so, so here we are. We're, we're in the book of Jude, and, um, and it, is, it is a really weird little book. You'll see the weirdness in just a second. I don't know how this sermon is going to go this morning because it's a lot. It's kind of a lot of ground to cover, even though it's a short letter. Um, there's a lot of details, so if it starts to feel a little luxury, forgive me. I'm going to try to keep it from that, but I don't know. So we'll see. We'll see. But um, I want to start with this. When I was in high school, uh, actually junior high and high school, I uh, was a big. I say, I, in my mind, I was a big time basketball player. And uh, I like I loved basketball so much. And then a, a knee injury took me out my senior year. I wasn't able to uh, play my senior year. I could have been, I could have been Michael. I could have been. No, I couldn't have been. <laughs> I wasn't even close. But no, I I I really really loved basketball. I mean, as soon as I I remember about I started playing in about fifth grade, and I just got the bug, and I loved it. And I, I, being always being the tallest kid in my class helped a little bit. Um, but yeah, I just, I really enjoyed that, that game. And then as I, as I got into like junior high and high school, especially in a high school, I just became obsessed with it. Just absolutely obsessed with it. You know, I was that kid constantly carrying around the ball and, uh, and then, you know, just practicing all off season, doing everything I could to get better. I, during the season, I mean, I didn't just play basketball, like I studied basketball. Like I studied it to the point that, you know, I had my notebooks where I would write out all my plays, all the X's and O's, and I, and I, would, I would, you know, do the arrows, and this, this one moves here, and this one moves here, and then I'm setting a pick here, and just on and on and on. I'm, 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 I'm draw, drawn and sketching all of that out all the time over and over and over and over to where I had every single play memorized and every single position in that play memorized so that if I ever needed to shift to a different position, although I was the tallest guy, I was never going to be anything but center. And so, but anyway, but I, in case they needed me at point guard for a game, <laughs> I knew what I was going to do. I was never a point guard. And so 
tall guys can't dribble. Anyway, so I, I uh, like it was, it was just, I, I obsessed and studied it, and I knew all those X's and O's, all the offense and the defense. Like, I, I just, it was important to me to be absolutely as prepared as I could be in a game situation. Like, I, I couldn't out-talent some guys on the court, but I could out-prepare some guys, right? I could do that. And so I was going to prepare as much as I absolutely possibly could. And I think that in church, in faith, what I want to emphasize and what Jude emphasizes to us in this letter this morning is that um, in church and in faith, there is also offense and defense, that we are called to live a, a life of, of offense and defense, and, and it's important for us to know what that looks like. It's important for us to know what is required of us offensively and defensively in life and in faith so that when certain scenarios come, we're ready and we're prepared for those, for those situations, no matter what the enemy throws at us, right? And that's actually what this book, little letter, is all about. It's all about being prepared for what the enemy is going to throw at you. So in the ancient world, early church, um, there were a lot, as the church kind of grew in, in, in uh, popularity and was spreading across the Roman world, um, there were certain people who began to see opportunities for exploitation. And they began to kind of worm their way into churches and present themselves as wise teachers uh, with the express intent of kind of leading people astray. Some of these people were were very devout uh, Jews who weren't happy with the Christian faith in the way that in their mind it kind of was getting everybody off of the Jewish faith and off of the things that really mattered, things like Sabbath and circumcision and and you know all these different things and and, and so they're like we we got to get everybody back to the law keeping right so they're trying to get people off of the grace of the gospel and back to the law keeping some people it was just they were just weirdos I mean there were there's one story in the in Acts the book of Acts where this guy uh, came to Jesus started the life in Christ he was a magician like his previous profession was that he was a magician and he saw some of the apostles doing miracles he was like dude I will pay you if you teach me how to do that. And they, you know, they get on to him like, yeah, yeah, this stuff's not for sale, dude, right? That's not why we're doing this. But there were some who got into the church that were like, I can maybe make a buck off of what's going on here. And so anyway, it was, uh, it became really something that, that had to be defended against all these snakes that were getting into the church. Uh, in almost all the letters uh, of the New Testament, there's some sort of big or small, some sort of admonition or warning to the congregation to like watch out for false teachers. And Jude's little letter here is pretty much all about that, all about watching out for false teachers. Now, it seems to be something that for us, we don't think it's really our thing. Like, really, false teachers, do we really have to watch out for that? Absolutely we do. We absolutely have to watch out for false teachers. They, they, they creep in all the time. And um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But Let's look at the first couple of verses of, of this little letter. So Jude starts off uh, a lot of the way a lot of other letters in this time would start off. He starts off and he says this, verse 1. He says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So he starts off and he says, I'm Jude, 
I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm the brother of James. Now, James was the guy who was the head of the church in Jerusalem. He was the leader of the church movement that was going on in Jerusalem. Uh, and Jude, being, you know, being James's uh, brother, who, this, you know, I'm the brother of the guy who's the head of the church in Jerusalem, you know, he, he kind of lived in his shadow, lived in his shadow of his, of his, of his brother James. And, but from, from other, other indications that we have from some early church writers, he seemed to be happy to do this. Like, he, he was happy with that relationship. He was kind of very humble about his role. There was no jealousy between him and his brother or anything like that. And probably because it wasn't just that he was living in the set shadow of his brother James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but that both Jude and James were living in the shadow of another guy named Jesus because their big brother was Jesus. Uh, and so Jude, the guy that writes this, this letter, is one of, the little, one of the kid brothers of Jesus, which is just crazy to me. Like... That, to me, that's one of the biggest proofs that this faith is true. Like, if you can convince your brother that you're God, that's, that's no joking right there, man. There's no way my brothers could convince me that they're God. Not a chance, and you know where could they convince me that they're God, right? Jesus convinces even his kid brothers that he's God. And, and, uh, and, and so that's, that's almost right there all by itself, proof enough for me. Um, and so, but yeah, they, but they take on this life, both of them, of just, you know, we are happy to humbly live in the shadow. And they, they very rarely call him out as, hey, that guy's my brother. No, 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 we're servants of Jesus Christ. We're servants of Jesus Christ. They, they had a, an awareness of this guy was more than just the guy that I shared a bedroom with or sat around and shared meals with growing up as a kid or played stickball out in the court with, or whatever, you know, like this guy, he was God in the flesh. And I have to recognize, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back from any claim, special claim I have on him, and just proclaim him to be who he is. He's the son of the living God, my Lord and my Savior, right? And so, a beautiful, beautiful thing that goes on there. Now, he mentions here at the end of this second verse that mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. We're going to come back to that concept of mercy, peace, and love in a little bit. But let's get into the kind of the meat of what he's trying to do here. Look at verse 3. So, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals who, whose con condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So Jude starts right off the bat. He's like, well, I was really looking forward to writing you all this letter about our salvation. Maybe some sort of word of encouragement or a theological trees or a little sermonette or something. I was looking forward to writing this letter about salvation, but now I feel this sense of urgency that I got to change my topic. I need to write to you about the false teachers that are starting to sneak into your group and, and are, are wrecking havoc. Like we got we to deal with that problem. And so, so that's where he's starting off. So our first big point today is this, that disciples, part of the job of a disciple is that we have to defend the church from wolves. We have to defend the church from wolves. And to recognize that there are wolves out there. Now, we live in a different age. You know how, like, we got these uh, 21st century problems that aren't really problems? And so we live in an age where things that used to be serious, like everybody kind of, you know, we live in an age where 
because of uh, vaccines and things and the way that we've come so far, there's a lot of diseases that used to just strike fear into the entire population of the planet that now we're kind of blasé about because it's not as big. We don't, you know, I, you know, none of us have a child or a cousin or, uh, you know, a neighbor or whatever that's eaten up with polio. Maybe you do, but I'm just throwing that as, a, as an example or whatever. So, so like, like we just don't see a lot of that stuff, and so we don't feel the sense of urgency around that thing. And the same thing is true about this idea of, of wolves. We, like our 21st century idea of wolves is bring the wolves back in. We got to get the wolves back into our national parks. And oh, it's so beautiful. And, I, and I'm not against that. Like, I think it's great that they're bringing the wolves back in and repopulating stuff like that. And, and, uh, but let's, let's, let's backtrack, say, 70, 80, 100 years ago. The attitude about wolves was much different. <laughs> much different. It was like, kill all the wolves right? Wolves are bad. Kill them all. They kill, our, they kill our livestock. They kill our kids. They are bad news, like get rid of the wolves, right? And so, and so it wasn't a joke. Nobody, there, back in this day, there was nobody, you know, really like, like defending the cause of the wolf back, you know, a hundred years ago plus or anything. Maybe a bit, there might've been a few, but not very many, right? It was pretty much generally, openly agreed, wolves, bad, kill wolves, right? And so, so there was a sense of, and we even grow up, if you're like me, you grew up hearing fairy tales that, are, you know, uh, that involved wolves like, and the, how horrible that they were and all this kind of stuff. But back, you know, again, here we are in this day where it's like, you know, okay, it's all right, let's repopulate the wolves, let's get them back in their natural environments. And I'm, again, I'm okay, I love it. I think that's very cool. But get this, I want us to kind of get back to that primal reaction to wolves because this idea that in the church there can be wolves is a really real thing, something that we should, that should cause us great concern and even a little bit of uh, fear slash respect. Like, we, we got to deal with that. So, so first, first thing that we need to do is that we need to call out, like boldly call out wolves that are dressed up like sheep. Call them out. Like, like I know we're all about love and we're all about acceptance and things like that, but sheep don't accept wolves, we just don't. We can try to, you know, unwolfify them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can give that a, you know, a good college try. We can try that. But at the end of the day, a wolf is a wolf and has no place among the sheep. And sometimes the most loving, most gracious thing that we can do for Jesus, for the cause of the church and everything else is to protect, to defend the church against wolves that might come in. So we call out boldly wolves that are dressed up like sheep. Sometimes this means having some tough conversations with people. We, I've used this example before, but it's just a perfect example of years ago when we used to have a men's breakfast uh, every week, and we met down at the Moose Lodge and stuff, and there was a guy, a young guy that started coming into to the meeting, and, and he seemed really great and nice, and we were happy that he came in and happy to get to know him and stuff like that. And then we started to notice that, that uh, he wasn't just like, participating with us, he was starting to pull guys aside and like secretly teach them. He's opening up the Bible and he's, he's like being secretive about it. He's kind of teaching just a small handful of guys out of the group that we had meeting for breakfast. And before long, one of the guys in the group said, uh, hey, I don't know if you're aware of this, which I wasn't. He's like, I don't know if you're aware of this, but this guy, uh, he's, he's gathering guys around him. He's teaching. He's teaching some things that are contrary to the gospel. And so... 
we had to sit down with him and have a conversation. And I remember that conversation really well. And I remember sitting with him and going, here's the deal. We love you and we're glad that you're here. And we want you to come and participate and get as much out of this as you possibly can. But if you continue to pull guys aside, teaching them contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then I will ask you to leave. Well, he didn't like that and he left. But it was this moment where we, like, I felt like it was this moment at, where as, uh, as men and as church leaders at that point, we were kind of put to the test, how are you going to deal with this wolf? How are you going to deal with this wolf? And so we call them out and, and we respect and fear the devastation that wolves can cause. It's important to, to respect slash fear the devastation that wolves can cause. Like, like you know, you, you got these, these guys who are like wild animal trainers and stuff like that, and, and uh, we all saw, you know, years ago the whole uh, Siegfried and Roy thing where one of their tigers attacked one of them, and it was hor- horrible, horrific. I can't imagine being in the audience having to see that and everything. Awful, awful situation. But I remember a, a comedian talking about that one time, and he was like, he was like, you know, people are saying, that tiger went crazy. And he's like, no, 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 that tiger didn't crazy. That tiger went tiger, right? That's what happened there. Like, you have to respect the, what the capacity of what a wolf, a wolf can do, especially in the sense of a, to a congregation. And, and when you have that healthy sense of respect and slash fear of what could potentially happen when wolves get into the sheep, then, it, then those decisions become no-brainers. Those conversations that might be difficult become necessary, you know, and so, so you're willing to have those conversations. The third thing I want to bring out about defending the church from wolves is that there, and this is kind of an aside, there is a difference that we need to recognize. We've got to show discernment. There is a difference between wolves and sick sheep. I'm not saying kick out all the sick sheep. That's not what I'm saying. Sometimes we all get a little wonky. Sometimes we all get a little selfish or get some wrong ideas or get some whatever. Some, that happens to all of us. So I'm not talking about just every uh, unhealthy sheep that comes along, kick them to the curb. I know I'm talking about people who have uh, selfish, ungodly, carnal designs on God's people to be able to recognize that through the help and discernment that the Holy Spirit gives us to go to deal with that problem. So, so we're talking about the defense now. Jude here is now talking about the defense that we as Christians need to be on, defending against uh, wolves from the, uh, for, for the church, for the sake of the church. He goes on in verse 5, he says this, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who do not believe. I want to stop right there for just a second, because Jude is, like I said, it's a weird book, and it's also a difficult book. You guys know these these letters were originally written in Greek, and this particular letter has a lot of language issues, a lot of language problems, in that there are a lot of words in this letter that we don't see commonly in other letters. So there's a lot of kind of scratching your head, how do we translate this word type of thing going on. There's also a lot of, he, he kind of deals with some uh, weird uh, concepts that, you know, again, scratching your head, how do we translate this concept so that it makes sense to people today or to people in other languages or whatever. And, and, and so th- there's, there's all of that. And, and then there's also a lot of really obscure references where we're going to get to later. Um, and so it can be a difficult book to translate. And so when you read the book of Jude, uh, say, like we are today in the NIV, and then you read it again, say, in the ESV or the King James Version, all these different versions that we have out there, you're going to see a lot of differences. A lot of different choices were made in the translation of this book. 
And I generally really enjoy the NIV. I think it's a really great translation. But in this particular letter, letter I think they made a couple of, of um, odd ch- uh, translation choices. And this is one of them. When they say there, uh, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. That word there that he translates as Lord is not the Greek word Lord. There is a Greek word Lord that we translate into Lord all the time. It's not this. That word is actually the Greek word Jesus, which is Greek for Jesus. The, the, the translation is actually, I want to remind you, and I think maybe if you're looking at an ESV, it might translate it this way, but I want to remind you that Jesus at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. I think it's, you know, it's, you know Jesus is God and he's the Lord and all that kind of stuff, and maybe it's not a big deal. I think it's a really important little reminder, though, that we shouldn't gloss over that that. The Jesus who we call out God through the Gospels is also the Jesus who was God when he was delivering people out of Egypt. They are one and the same. They are one and the same. And that Jesus who who also is capable of deliverance is also capable of judgment. Who is also ready to deliver his people who cry out for need is also ready to judge those who come up against his people. I think that's a really important distinguishment. He goes on and he says this. And the angels, who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And here he's talking about that, that biblical concept that uh, Satan and, his, and, and the fallen angels that kind of rebelled against uh, God and the heavenly host and that sort of thing, that kind of swole up with pride and decided that they wanted to be on the same level as God or wanted something different than what God was giving them. And they rebel, so he's referencing that, that biblical story, right? And then he goes on and he says this, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, and they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So again, this city, this Genesis story of, the, of these cities, these twin cities that, that God ultimately destroyed because of the wickedness that existed in those cities, just, just that, that, that they would not accept God's beautiful plan for sex, uh, that, that should be something between, uh, that, that, is meant for, that is meant for marriage and something really beautiful. Instead, they wanted to go outside of those bounds and do other things. And then also we're told in Scripture that their sin was, was not just that, but their lack of hospitality to strangers. That They were just full of themselves and they just followed whatever evil desires came into their hearts and they didn't care about anybody else. And so some really odd choices there, but the point he's trying to make is this, is that one, that Jesus will and is capable of punishing faithlessness from the Egyptian story. He will punish pride, the fallen angel story, and that he'll punish immoral sexuality from the Sodom story, right? That's, that, that, that's the whole point he's trying to make. Jesus, this God who will deliver and rescue us and who is a beautiful, beautiful Savior to serve, is also the same Jesus who ultimately will judge. Now, look at uh, Jude verse 8. In the same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, now here's one of those weird obscure references, okay? This is so weird. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they don't understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as, ir- as, as kind of the same as irrational animals do, those things will destroy them. 
So the, here, here he's, he's got this really obscure reference. Well, first of all, he starts by, by saying this. He says, the, the way these people are coming into your churches is that they're saying this. I've got this vision. I've got this dream. And so my dream and my vision trumps the truth that you know. My dream trumps whatever uh, the word of God is in your life, whether that's coming from scripture or coming from the word of God that you know is the words of Christ or, or, or whatever's being preached to you is truth. Our visions trump all of that, so you need to pay attention to our visions. They're using these so-called visions to sway people in immoral directions. And, and so then he, he uses this, this other writing that we have no idea where, well, we actually do know where it comes from, but, but most of us as Christians have no idea where it comes from, this idea of, of Satan and the archangel Michael arguing over, did my mic just go out? Am I good? Okay, so anyway, arguing over um, the body of Moses, right? It's like, I don't remember that story in the Bible. I don't remember that, reading that. In the, nobody taught me that one in, in uh, Sunday school growing up. And so what it is, it's a reference to an apocryphal book that they would have had access to uh, called The Assumption of Moses. And, and, it's just, and so you guys know that there are other so-called uh, biblical books. Um, you, you might find them in the Catholic Bible, kind of the in-between the two testaments books that we call the Apocrypha, right? Uh, Maccabees and Esdras and, and, and Enoch and some of these books that, that are... There's absolutely nothing wrong with those books. Absolutely nothing wrong with those books. And uh, you're, it's, in fact, I think it's good and healthy to read them because they do provide context into difficult passages like this a lot of times. Uh, nothing wrong with them at all. We just don't see that they meet the same level as, as Scripture as other books do. But uh, regardless, good, healthy books to read. It's totally fine. But he's referencing one of those, referencing one of those. It's something that, again, is kind of weird. And he's not, and by the way, just because that reference is there does not mean necessarily mean that this actually took place, this kind of bartering over Moses' body between Satan and, and Michael. Uh, it just means you guys know that story of how this happened. And even Michael, who was totally in the right, he is one of God's angels, right, going up against Satan, he didn't assume to disrespect or, or whatever Satan. He was just like, God will deal with you, right? And he's like, but these people have no, anything that they don't understand, they don't respect it, and they badmouth it, and all they know is their carnal instincts, and they follow those, and, and eventually they'll destroy them. All right, so let's keep moving. Jude 11. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Anybody understand all that? Yeah. So, so here's what's going on. Those are three Old Testament stories that he's referenced. The first one is they've taken the way of Cain. Cain was one of the sons of Adam and Eve who murdered his brother Abel, right? And so he's like, they've taken the way of Cain. And what was he saying? These people are murderers. Now, I don't think he was actually calling them out as literal murderers. I think he's probably what he's doing is like by getting into the church, these people are murdering the souls and spirits of people out there and sending them out away from the truth. Uh, they're, they're essentially like killing them and murdering them. He says, so they've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's heir. Now, Balaam is this guy, uh, one of my favorite stories of, of the Old Testament. He's this guy that, um, that was sent out by a king to basically, uh, for profit, go teach a false message to uh, the Israelites. And, uh, and so he gets on his donkey, and he's headed to do this work where he's, he's, he's a prophet, and he's going to use his prophetic abilities to make some money off of this king by teaching something that he knows is false. And so he's heading to where he's supposed to be going, and he's riding this donkey, and then this donkey sees an angel down the path with a sword about to kill uh, uh, Balaam. And so the donkey stops and refuses to go. 
Well, Balaam gets mad and he's beating the donkey. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And he won't, he won't. He's being stubborn. Finally, he gets off into a field, this donkey, and Balaam's just beating the mess out of him. Let's go, let's go. And then God gives the donkey speech and the donkey talks to him. He's like, I'm making waffles. No, that's not what he said. But he said, but so, so anyway, but the donkey speaks, the donkey speaks and he, he says, he's like, sorry. So he, he, He's like, there's an angel there, and it's about to kill you and I both. And, 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 and Balaam, what cracks me up about that, you got to go read the story sometime, but what cracks me up about that story is that Balaam doesn't go, holy cow, my donkey's talking. He just starts arguing with him. He was like, I don't care what's going there. we got to go, you know, that sort of thing. So it's just it's really weird. But, he's, but basically, he, he, Jude here is calling out the story of Balaam, and what he's saying is that just like Balaam was willing to sacrifice truth for profit, for money, for greed, that's what these guys are doing too. And then, and then he uses that reference to they've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. This was a group that came up when the Israelites had escaped e- Egypt, and they decided they wanted to usurp the authority of Moses and Aaron as the leaders of, of the Israelites and try to, try to become the new leaders. So they kind of staged a coup against Moses and Aaron, and God literally opened up the ground and swallowed them up. Like, like it, they, there was a big-time judgment there for these people. And what he's saying is, like, these people have no regard for the for the people that God has placed in spiritual authority over you, and their pride is going to be their destruction. All right? So then he goes on there in the next verse. He says, these people are blemishes at your love feast, which I referenced earlier. These are guys are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. So now here's the thing. We talked about earlier that the love feast were another name for the communion services. And he says these guys are blemishes on those services, on, those, on that communion time, on those, on those love feasts. This is another word in this particular book that the NIV, I think, gets really wrong. There's nothing wrong um, ideological about it. Like, it. like it gets across the same, a similar point, but the actual word there is so much better, so much better. Some of your other versions might, might have it translated uh, the, the, what I would think is the right way. But the literal word, the word there that, we tra- that NIV translates as blemishes that literal word is a submerged reef or rock. In other words, a, a dangerous place uh, off the coast of you know off the coast or whatever, where, a place that, that might cause a ship to wreck if they hit that rock. You can't see it, but it's there. It's there. And I, again, there, it misses by trans, making that translation choice. It misses this beautiful image that Judah's trying to portray. You are letting these guys into your worship. And you're accepting them, even though what they are is people who will potentially cause you all to shipwreck your faith. And you need to be careful. You need to be watchful for them. He goes on and he says, they are clouds without, oh no, he says they're uh, shepherds who feed only themselves. That's pretty, I mean, they're greedy, right? They're selfish. They're clouds without rain blown along by the wind. In other words, they're empty. There's no hope in, that, in what they're saying. There's, what they have is empty. They bring you nothing. They are autumn trees without fruit and uprooted twice dead. They are fruitless. Their words are fruitless. They are dead on the inside. And they are, I love this one. They're wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. And then what he's doing here is he's bringing up this image of you guys. If you've been around the ocean very long, you know that the ocean pushes all kinds of garbage up onto the beach, right? That churning of those waves, and it just, it just leaves 
garbage and trash and debris all along the beach, right? He's like, this is what these guys do. They're just churning up trash and leaving it on your doorstep. That's all they're doing to you. He said, and he says, finally, they're wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. The the idea of a wandering star is, is what we would call shooting stars. They look bright for a second, but then they fade out into blackness. There's just nothing to them. They, they just What they say will eventually burn out and mean nothing to you. He goes on. Verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from... This is another one of those obscure references from an apocryphal book one, that we don't really put in our Bible, but he's referencing this story because he knows the story. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Then he says, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. If you haven't got it yet, he's not a fan of these people. All right, verse 17. But dear friends, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you who follow mere natural instincts and do not have uh, the spirit. He's just reminding you know, the apostles, the people who planted your churches, the people who are, are your kind of spiritual fathers in the faith, they warned you that these guys were coming. They warned you to watch out for them. And here they are. They're here. And I think I want to just stop for just a, just a brief second and just go, I think that we as 21st century church, we look back at all these warnings in the Old Testament that were given to that early church And I think we feel so far removed from those warnings that we forget that we also need to be watchful for those things. We also need to be watchful for those things. What apostolic warnings might we be ignoring that maybe we should be paying attention to? Now, in verse 20, he shifts from defense to offense. Now, now we've spent some time on the X's. Let's spend some time on the O's, okay? And this is what he says, verse 20. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So here he shifts to, to, to the offense, and he says, first of all, he says, your first method of offense is this, faith. And the faith he's talking about here, it's not like a personal faith, the kind of faith. He's, he's making a, a reference to the larger idea of faith, the historic faith that we have, that we're surrounded by, as, as uh, Hebrews puts it, a great cloud of what we're part of something larger than just us. It, and it's communal. It's like it's, that faith that you share with all the other people of faith is one of your first lines of offense. He's, and then he's like praying in the spirit. Some people have, 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 think, have thought this idea of praying in the Spirit is a specific reference to tongues, praying in tongues. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. In fact, I don't think there's any other way to pray than praying in the Spirit. If you're praying, you're praying in the Spirit, right? Like, like if you're genuinely connecting with God, then that, the Spirit's definitely involved in that. He's like, don't, don't underestimate the power of prayer. And then to focus on God's love, you know, his, his love there. 
Focus on God's love. Like be people about the love of God and be people who are, who are not just experiencing the love of God, but that are sharing the love of God. Like we talked about last week, that cruciform life that there, we experience God's love and then we horizontally, we share his love as well, right? And then he basically tells them don't, not to lose hope. He's like, you know, as, as you wait for the mercy of, of eternal life and all that kind of stuff, it's like, in other words, don't lose hope. Don't let go of the hope that you have on. That's one of your biggest things that you can do offensively as a follower of Jesus Christ. And then finally, he says, let mercy lead you to rescue others. Let mercy lead you to rescue others. But then he also says, has this weird phrase where he says, but it should be mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. I think we all know as Christians that we're called to live lives of mercy and we're called to reach people where they are and help them out, help a brother and sister out. Like, like we're supposed to do that sort of stuff and we, most of us gladly embrace that role. But he also says, let your mercy be tempered with fear. And I think what he's saying is that as you help people who are in, in deep pits, be careful that they don't pull you down into the pit with them. Be careful. He's like, like hate, like one of the ways that you can do this is to hate, hate even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Like, how are we called to hate? I think what he's saying is, let me share this example with you. I recently, a while back, not actually not that recently, a while back, uh, we're counseling a family, and um, this is one of the worst situations I've ever had to counsel. I mean, imagine a situation that a couple might possibly be going through. Yep, they were going through that. Um, imagine a situation that a couple on a soap opera might be going through. Yep, that too. Like, like I, I don't even want to list it for you, but it, was, it went from minor to mid-level stuff to, like, heavy stuff to, like, oh, my gosh, I've never even dealt with that thing before. Like, it was all of this like 12 couples worth of counseling issues all rolled into one couple. And there were things that they were playing around with and flirting with in their life that I began, I began to realize as I was counseling them, I had not taken some of those issues seriously enough. And it began to make me hate those problems. Like, I, I began to, not them, not them as people, but those issues that they were struggling with that maybe I took too lightly before, I stopped taking them so lightly, and I started going, no, no, this is evil. This is evil, and it has no place in my thoughts, much less my life. It has no place for me to even joke about it, because it's serious, and it destroys families. And when we can, with mercy, dive into people's lives and help them in their situations, but also make sure that we don't get pulled down in the pit with them and point them towards the righteousness of God. It's one of the most beautiful, one of the most loving things that you can do for a person. We live in this world that has, that has convinced us that the way you love people is to just simply encourage them and accept them and, you know, cheer them on. Sometimes that's true. But sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is have hard conversations with people and say, I don't know if you realize this, but you're heading towards that cliff. And if you're not going to turn, I'm going to grab the wheel for you, right? 
Like one of the most loving things that you can do is to get in people's lives in that kind of way where you're actually rescuing and helping. But it's messy. It's messy. The final point I want to make is this, is that the disciples' offense is faith, prayer, love, hope, and mercy. All of these things. This is our arsenal. These are our weapons. Our weapon is not a picket sign. Our weapon is not shouting. Our weapon is not hating the world around us. Our weapons are love and prayer and a faith that we all share together and hoping in what God is good, that God is eventually going to set this whole mess eventually right. And mercy, exercising mercy towards the people around us. Not hate, not judgment. No, be merciful to the people who are far from God. Do that. And he closes off the letter like this. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. He's just given us this this tirade of why these false teachers, these wolves, are such a danger to them. But he brings it back. You know, he, he set up the X's and O's for us. And he gives us a, a pattern to say, as followers of Jesus Christ, make sure you know your defense. Make sure you know your offense. But he caps it off with this beautiful, beautiful passage, this beautiful little prayer. And it's this beautiful reminder that ultimately Jesus is the star of our offense and our defense, not us. It's not up to us to become superstars on this team that we call church. The only superstar that we have on this team is Jesus. He's the only one. And God is not looking for star players to recruit to his team. What he's looking for is people like James and Jude who will humbly live in the shadow of King Jesus. That's what he's looking for. And that what I love about that is this. For those of you who are maybe brand new to the room today, brand new to this group, and you're just like, I don't know about this whole church thing and faith, and should I be a part of it? And I, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I got too much junk going on. Like, I'm just gonna I'm gonna set your mind at ease right now, and and all that stuff that's going on in your head that you could never be good enough, and you're not gonna be a superstar Christian, all that kind of stuff. The good news is that's true. You can't. None of us can. And the other good news is that that's okay. Because that's not what God's asking for us. God just wants us to recognize who the superstar is and get behind him. Let's just ride his coattails all the way into the kingdom, right? Let's just do that. All those, all those uh, you know, what was it, five or six uh, championship rings that Michael Jordan got? Like, awesome, right? Guess what? Everybody else on the team got a ring too. <laughs> Everybody else, even the guys that stayed on the bench, the whole team, they're walking around the whole game. Yeah, they're walking around with a big old ring on their finger, right? And that we, I just want to be that guy. Let me be, just let me be the guy riding, you know, king, the king's coattails all the way into the kingdom. I'll get the ring just like everybody else. It'll all be good, right? You can do that. All that stuff the enemy's shouting in your head right now that you can never be good enough and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 you can never be good enough, but you're not called to be good enough. That was Jesus' job. You're just called to follow. You're just called to follow. You can do this. You can absolutely do this. So give your life to Jesus. Start following him today. Do that. And we want to join you in that. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you so much for uh, the word of your servant, Jude. 
that we ignore a lot. And um, thank you for helping us make a little sense of it. And uh, thank you for the just the very clear, compelling warning for us to protect the beauty of your church and also go out into the world and not be offensive the way that most of the world considers us to be offensive, but to be offensive with things like love and mercy. So help us to become those people. And, uh, and we ask that you and your Holy Spirit, that you would just guard the unity that we have here and the love that we have here. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I can't, we're done now. We can leave. But would you just do me a favor real fast? Like, it's Jude. It's Jude. So could we just be like, na, 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 Hey, Jude. Jude, 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 Jude. Okay. All right, everybody have a good week.